The question that we're going to uh, ask tonight and discuss tonight are why are certain groups of young people, specifically African American and lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender or LGBT youth, more at risk for homelessness? Now, I remind you that those are not the only groups of youth that are at risk for homelessness, right? I mean, Native Americans, kids coming out of the foster care and the criminal justice system. Um, Really, really pleased to introduce our five panelists. Uh, and you know, these guys are not getting paid. I mean, they're just kind of doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. We really, really appreciate it. To my right, immediate right, is Megan Gibbard, who is the Homeless Youth and Young Adult Project Manager for the King County Committee to End Homelessness. Shannon Perez-Darby, Youth Services Program Director at the Northwest Network, which is a Seattle-based organization that serves LGBTQ youth. Alita Wright the pro youth case manager at Auburn Youth Resources down in uh -huh, Auburn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sarah Rankins, an associate professor, I love this title, of lawyering skills. I didn't come up with that myself. Uh, yes. Yes. At uh, mm -hmm. Seattle University. School of Law. At School of Law, thank you. Um, and uh, Sarah, is, uh, her, she and her students are actually studying the inner, a lot of what we're talking about tonight, the intersection of homelessness with uh, a lot of characteristics like uh, race, gender, criminal uh, record, sexual identity, immigration status, et cetera. So she'll have some really interesting 30,000-foot comments to make. Um, and Trey Williams, Montre Williams, also known as Trey Williams, who's been here before. Yeah. Yes. And Trey has spent part of her youth uh, on the streets and now works for the Mockingbird Society and also for Northwest Network as a youth outreach expert. So let's give him a hand, shall we? Thank you. Uh, since we don't have a huge amount of time tonight, I'm, I'm going to just get right to it. I, I want to start with Megan. Uh, Megan works for the county, but Megan has also been on the other side in working for advocacy agencies in Seattle on uh, youth issues. So she, she's really seen the, uh, the problem from both sides. And I'm going to ask you if you could kind of, let's talk numbers. Okay, so like, could you set the stage for us? Uh, what, what's the size of the homeless youth population in King County? What's its complexion in terms of uh, demographics? How does that compare to statewide numbers, maybe to nationwide numbers? And I guess I get, I got to give you the microphone. Great. Hi, everybody. I, uh, I promise that I will not yam on and on to you about the numbers, but I'll do some very quick context setting just to frame the conversation <coughs> from here. Um, I work for the Committee to End Homelessness, uh, and so we have a youth and young adult initiative. For the past two years, we've been leading the regional effort to have both a plan and then a strategy to address youth homelessness. I think the good news that I always try to share is that youth homelessness is a, a solvable problem. Um, the numbers are very tragic, but it's not an impossible feat, and I, I really believe that, which is why I'm in this role and why I'm working with all of these folks. So. Some of the numbers, just to get to the boring stuff right away, is that it's not a surprise, and you all know this because you're here, that youth of color and GLBTQ youth are disproportionately overrepresented among young people who experience homelessness. Specifically, um, getting real to brass tacks, in any given year, about 5,000 young people are homeless and use a homeless program throughout King County. That could be for one night, and that could be for the whole year. 779 young people in 2014, during Count Us In, which is our community's point in time count of homeless young people, experienced homelessness or unstable housing. Again, that's during a point in time. So the numbers I reference are either from our homelessness management information system, lovingly known as Safe Harbors, which is our regional database, or that point in time count. Um, the data's not perfect, but it gives us a pretty good gauge of the scope of the problem. Almost 70% of young people enrolled in safe harbors, again, homeless during some point in time throughout 2013, were youth of color, about 
People of color constitute only 35%, give or take, of King County's population. So that's the scope, at the bare minimum scope of the overrepresentation of homelessness. Youth of color represent 44% of the unsheltered. So during a point in time when we say, where did you spend the night the night before? 44% of the kids that said yes were kids of color. And 32% of the, of the total during that point in time. So again, we can sort of go back to that, but I just want to give you a, a general sense of the scope of that overrepresentation. There's some questions around maybe good news, and I'll get to that in a moment, but there's differences. There's, we see different patterns in how youth of color, particularly African-American youth, and other youth access services too. And the question there is always, was well, that a good thing or a bad thing? Are African-American youth transitioning from homelessness more quickly, and that's great, or are our services not as responsive to those young people? And that's an open question. Um, the other bit of context I want to give for African-American youth is that there's been studies, noticeably the California Homeless Youth Project, that interviewed African-American youth in particular and about their experiences of homelessness. And black youth said that are less likely to identify as homeless, less likely to say that they're homeless, and more likely to be overlooked by the service system. So huge generalizations, but I think what we're seeing is there's patterns of difference in how different young people experience homelessness. And so our strategies need to be tailored to different young people. Um, on queer and trans youth, briefly, of homeless and unstably housed young people again during that point in time, in January of 2014, 22% of the young people surveyed identified as LGBTQ. And those are young people that during a brief interview said, yes, I'm lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning. So that's in, in one quick interaction a young person that is willing to say, yes, that reflects my identity. So again, that's a, I always forget if it's a floor or a ceiling, but that's a, a bare minimum count. Floor? Ceiling? Um, LGBTQ young people also represent 27% of the unsheltered population. So of young people that said the night before they slept outside, over a quarter of those were GLBTQ. Last bit of context I'd like to offer is that um, there's a lot of attention, I think, in these types of conversations about queer and trans young people being kicked out of the home um, due to their sexual orientation or their gender identity. And while that is certainly true, and that is a factor that we need to address, Queer and trans young people are also homeless because of poverty, because of abuse, because of situations like any other young person. So I think when we look at what our services are and how our services need to be responsive, every single program needs to be welcoming of queer and trans youth, of course, of youth of color, and not just those that may stand up and say, yes, I'm a queer and trans young person and I was kicked out of the home because I'm gay. Uh, so just some thoughts. Uh, we'd love to talk more, but I'll pass things over to Shannon. Okay. Yeah, Shannon, thank you. Um, thank you, you Megan. Doesn't she talk fast? Uh, was I talking too fast? No, 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 it's good, it's good. I love that. <laughs> like so Shannon, um, you do a lot of work with LGBTQ kids. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's like, how many kids, what their situations are? Yes. And, wh and what you do to help them. Yeah, so at the Northwest Network, we started as a support group for lesbian survivors of domestic violence. And about 11 years ago, we started formal supports for LGBT young people. And what we quickly learned is that LGBT youth needed support around domestic and sexual violence, but they also needed support around uh, a whole intersection of different violences they were experiencing. So we support queer and trans young people broadly around basic needs, around social connection. Uh, we, I used to facilitate a drop-in group for LGBT young people, and the number one question they kept asking was, where do I meet other LGBT young people to socialize with, to be friends with, to make community connections? So we do a lot of work of helping people have strong communities, strong connections with each other, um, and that it's pretty easy to see that when we are, we're working with young people experiencing violence, that we very quickly started to see many young people who were not getting their basic needs met, who were homeless, who were unstably housed, who were, um, who just in all the ways they were not getting their basic needs met. 
Um, so the Northwest Network meets with young people both in person and over the phone. We provide flexible support, so we work really hard at meeting folks where they're at. And that the core question of our work is how do we support youth in self-determination? How do we support them in their vision of their great lives for themselves? Because I can have a vision of, your, of what your life is and what's going to be great, and and that doesn't actually serve you. <laughs> that it doesn't really matter what I think is gonna be best for you. It matters what you think is gonna be best for you. And so that we work with young people to remove and to look at and address systematic barriers. What are the barriers that are getting in the way of that great life? And to echo Megan, we see a lot of the intersections, I think, of, um, of violence, of poverty, of structural inequality, that uh, we talk a lot about why um, it's easy, most easy for people to understand that an LGBT young person who's homeless is homeless because of family rejection. And then that they're kicked out of their house because of their gender identity, their sexual orientation. And um, while that is absolutely a, a factor that goes into LGBT youth homelessness, that's only a small part of that. And what we really have to see and address is the complex needs of folks and that, you know, being embraced by your family and your community is, an, is, a, is a human need, like feeling seen and known, as well as having a stable, safe place to live, as well as having all of your complex needs met. And so we work really hard at, at both working directly with folks to make sure those needs are met, as well as building the conditions to support loving, equitable relationships and communities. And that we see that the duality of that work is how we are going to move forward to actually change the conditions that lead to homelessness, the conditions that lead to violence. Let me ask you a question. When we spoke on the phone, uh, I was—I I sort of assumed when we started talking that most queer and trans kids are were homeless because they got thrown out of their homes. You, you talked about that earlier, uh, and you said that no, actually, a lot of the kids that you work with are victims of, of violence. Mm -hmm. And so, what is it that makes an LGBTQ kid more susceptible to violence—domestic violence, partnership violence, whatever kind of violence it is? Yeah, I, we talk about this in some ways of. Um you know, if, you, if who you are in the world is not um, abundantly embraced, if you don't see representations of yourself in the world, if you don't see representations of what it is to have a great, fabulous life of people that look like you, of people that are having experiences like you, um, it can be really hard to envision that. And so in the, the conditions of homophobia, of transphobia, of structural inequality lead to, lead to places where LGBT young people are seen as more vulnerable, where their, their lives aren't seen as, as valuable, um, their voices aren't seen as, as valuable or as, um, as legitimate. And so if you are someone who's trying to mess with a person, you might pick a person who's socially vulnerable, who may not be believed, who may seem um, off or weird or not, just not part of the norm. And so that those conditions of the world make young LGBT young people often more vulnerable to folks who are trying to do harm to people. And they're less likely maybe to, to tell. Right. And because if you, you know, if you're just not told that your life is valuable, important, or that there's something about your sexuality that might be weird or different, mm -hmm. that um, that's a way that people who are trying to do harm to folks can utilize those notions that exist in the world, even as we're working hard to unlearn those and change those and think about those as old ideas um, that like that gay people are perverts, like that that's an old idea that we have done a pretty good job of getting rid of. But that's still the fabric of that still exists for folks and still has a very um, sensitive and, and tender part that, that folks can utilize. Let me, let me, hey, Trey, let me, let me toss it to Trey for a sec. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about your experience? But how did you wind up without a home? Um, hi, everybody. How are you doing? 
Um, I first became homeless when I was 13 years old. Um, I grew up in a single-parent home. Uh, my dad, I didn't have my mom. My mom was still in Texas. I'm originally from Houston. We moved here when I was a little bit younger. Um, I became homeless. At first, my parent didn't really know that I was gay or that I identified as a lesbian. He didn't know that. I did a pretty good job hiding that. I kept that under the wraps. Um, it was more so my parent just really just felt like neglecting me, you know? Like he didn't really care for taking care of kids. He did a great job of making babies, you know? My siblings are beautiful, but he didn't do a good job of taking care of us or teaching us how to do things or how to tie my shoes or play sports, you know, or how to read or say my ABCs. That really wasn't his forte. Um, as I got older in high school and stuff, I started more acting out. He already he already didn't care. So me showing my personality more, I was like, okay, well, whatever, forget it. Then I'm just going to be me. You know, I like this. He doesn't care. I'm just going to do me. You know, once he found out, I was probably like sophomore year, 15, 15th birthday. A few weeks later, you know, I got a call on my dad. He's beefing and everything. I get put out within the hour. Everything I had, he kept because he bought it. So I really didn't have nothing but good, but the clothes I went to school in. And it was a wrap after that, you know. I could have went back home, but I really didn't want to because, you know, it was too much emotional and mental abuse. Why go to somebody who doesn't care or who talks about me or who could really care less whether I live or die so it doesn't matter to me personally. So I just continued to stay in the streets and, you know, find my own way. Yeah. Did you have, did you have anybody in particular that you could stay with or you just sort of wandered from place to place? Um, I did a lot of wondering. I stayed with a lot of friends. I stayed in a lot of hotels, you know find out that you were gay? Facebook. Facebook. <laughs> Damn. No, okay. MySpace. MySpace okay. at the time. Okay. MySpace. Right. Okay. Let's, let's. Right. MySpace. MySpace. Way, way back. Sorry. But yeah, um, he had seen a picture on MySpace. Like, I've been pretty open. I've known I, I was a lesbian since, like, probably the age of five. Mm -hmm. I think I've always known. There's always been something there. I couldn't really put my finger on it. But, you know, there's always been something, like, awkwardly fantastic yeah. about me uh -huh. but um he found out you know on on my space I had like pictures and stuff mm -hmm. of the person I was in a relationship at the time you know where I could really be me everybody at school knew who I was you know and nosy yeah. adults you know not you guys, not you guys, <laughs> but, you know, at the time, you know, they kind of caught me up and everything and spying on me and they told my dad and stuff. So it just kind of went downhill from there. All right. We'll, yeah. we'll, be, we'll get back to that. Yeah, we'll Lita, let's, let's uh, so Auburn Youth Resources, um, you work with a lot, a lot of kids, but African-American kids as well. So what is it, why do those kids wind up homeless? Why do the black kids that you work with, just a few examples, why do they wind up on the street? Anything from similar stories to that to um, generational poverty generational poverty um, the way that our kids end up homeless is a little different and as Megan alluded to um, our kids don't see themselves the african-american kids oftentimes don't identify as homeless and the HUD definition of homelessness is very stringent in many ways and there have to be certain criterion we count in our program um, the partners reaching out to youth pro-youth we have been able to historically count people that were couch surfing 
people that were moving from friend to family to friend to family, um, sometimes on the streets, as long as they have family or they have friends where they haven't worn out their welcome in the course of a year and a half or two years, they don't feel like they're homeless. And that means that they're doing without a lot of basic needs, um, sometimes missing out on school. Um, they become homeless when somebody tells them repeatedly, you can't stay here, you can't stay here, you can't stay here. Um, and then they have to face it. Or they talk with a lot of the kids that I get referred are referred by other youth who are just like, do you want something to change in your life? So they're not accessing services either because they don't identify as homeless? I would say they're not accessing services, but when I went and looked at the numbers, our numbers last year, we had 139 um, people in our caseload, two of us, had 139 people with whom we worked. 63 of them were African-American. When you look at the population at 12%, about, for this King County, that's grossly um, disproportional. And then we had multiple uh, multi-race people. That's another 24. So the predominance, we only had 36 white people that we worked with last year. Mm. I was surprised. Um, and, and when you, you talk, cause I thought it was really interesting that uh, African-Americans youth are so overrepresented in the homeless population and yet they do seem to have this fairly broad network of family and friends that they can that won't let stay them with fall. temporarily yeah right so uh, i thought that was an interesting uh, irony or or contradiction or how do you conundrum thank you uh, <laughs> <laughs> um it it works for them it works against them in times sometimes in trying to access services because if they don't come with the right, the correct answers, I am homeless, I am living on the streets, I have no shelter, I have no monetary means for obtaining housing. If they don't say those things specifically, and many have not been coached to say that because you always have family. Um, people will always do the best. I mean, even people, I mean, if you've had generational or lots of like historic poverty, for many reasons, um, people will help people. So if you don't answer the corrections, questions correctly, you can end up not counted as one who is in need of services. You talked about poverty. Mm. Um, so why is poverty so, su such a factor in, in African-American homelessness? How, how would you address that question? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's another whole big conversation. I know, I know. Wait, well, do it, just do it fast. So, uh, <laughs> but for the impact of racism, poverty would not be at the level that it is. Um, I think the, the word you used was structural inequality. Institutional, um, our institutions are set up to keep some people moving forward and keep some people in place. African Americans are in that space. Part of it is also the internalized, so the internalization of the messages of racism that say you will not succeed, you will not um, complete school, you will not get jobs, you will not get the jobs that you might deserve. Um, Seattle, we're very liberal, and Seattle and King County, very liberal, but <clears throat> we have a, I, I talked with you on the phone about the um, cradle to prison um, pipeline. 
it's very alive and well here in Seattle. It's very much, if you go into certain schools, you can see the stratification, and that stratification is class-based, which means a lot of people who are African heritage are at that poverty level. Mm -hmm. Um, so hang on to that question, okay? okay. So what, all right, so you know, the, the, the let's do the Rush Limbaugh show. Is it time? Oh, fine. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> I'm um, prepared for this. You know, the, one of the um, the classic comebacks to the issue of why are there so many African Americans? Just in this example, youth homeless. Why are African Americans so overrepresented in the homeless youth population? Is because well, okay, well you know, the, all the men are in jail, all the women are on welfare. The, they, they just don't. They're bad parents. Boom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, again, back to institutionalization mm -hmm. of systems. Uh, if we look at who is in jail and why, again, overrepresentation. If we look at why they're there, basically, mostly misdemeanors that turned into felonies. You're looking at men who are not there raising their children. You're looking at women who are single, who are raising their children and you're looking at a society that makes judgments and litigates on the basis of what they see that is not representative or reflective of them. I'm trying to be as clear as I can. Um, so a lot of, when you're looking at role models, also when you're looking in the work environment, when you're looking at who your service providers are, when you're looking at who ultimately determines your life, whether it's from the front of the school, whether it's from the judge's bench, whether it's whether you're going into shops, whether it's a lot of things. It still in 2015, race plays a big, has a big impact. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of the kids that I get to work with, one of the things that I appreciate about being there is that whether I intend it or not, my age sets me apart enough that there's a place that I get to be a mentor, a representative in a different way. And the thing that I hold out the most is anything is possible, let's do what we can little by little to make possibility happen, which a lot of times isn't a message that they've had. And they're also being measured in a homeless environment. They're being measured against other people who are succeeding in different ways than they, than they are at different rates. So I think just to add to that really quickly too, I mentioned that we have, I'm gonna talk slower. Um, we do have statistics in King County about how African-American young people use services. And I think if we, if we flip your question and sort of look at what are the strengths of African-American young people, what appear to be the strengths of African-American young people, some of it is that the returns to homelessness for those young people are much less than their white peers, for instance. Again, there's a question in there. Is that because the services were not responsive to them? And although they return to some experience of unstable housing, they don't want to go back to those services? That's a good question to ask. But the, the returns are quite a bit lower for African-American young people. And I think that that suggests a real strength, both of family, of community, of dreams, of goals, and all these other things, like, like all young people. But again, I think if you flip the question, you get an entirely different story about what young people are experiencing who are African-American on the streets. In the face of all that, they are dreaming very large, are incredibly resilient young people, and so on. And just a reminder, so we'll take questions at the end, okay? So hang on to that question. Um, let, me, let me move on to Sarah Rankins. Both Alita and, and um, Shannon have talked about 
uh, you know, raised issues of oppression and, and marginality, discrimination, and, and that's, that's like right in your wheelhouse, Sarah. I mean, you are looking at homelessness uh, as, a, as a nexus, as a crossroads, really, for a lot of these kinds of issues. So can you talk a little bit about the study that you and your students are working on and some of the questions you're trying to answer and address? Yeah, I'd, I'd be delighted to do that. Um, in terms of the specific focus on uh, demographics and um, looking at marginalized groups and the disproportionality of marginalized groups and homeless populations, Kaya Lurie is um, a student of mine. She's one of two primary researchers and authors. Um, we are publishing a series of four um, policy briefs at the end of May looking at uh, the criminalization of homelessness. And so um, this is a phenomenon um, that concerns me as a lawyer uh, and I think should concern everyone because it goes straight to the heart of um, what Alita and Shannon have been talking about in terms of how uh, racism and sexism are made an integral part of the system. And the tool um, uh, that is frequently used is the law. Right, the law becomes a tool of the privileged, not just to um, uh, 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 not just to deal with circumstances that already exist, but to actually create cir the circumstances in which homelessness can thrive. Um, so I'll give you an, ex an, an example. When I say the criminalization of homelessness, I'm talking about laws that make it illegal to exist as a homeless person. So wrap your mind around this. Um, you know, if, if I were to ask you, and I, I won't make you embarrass yourselves, but if I asked you how many of you have to, have to urinate and defecate, everyone will raise their hand. Um, if I ask you how many of you um, are often, often accept food from other people, all of you will raise your hand. How many of you occasionally have body odor? Uh, I know I would raise my hand. Um, uh, how many of you need to sleep? all of you would raise your hand. Um, all of these activities that I just mentioned, resting, sleeping, receiving food from others, um, storing property, storing private property, these are, all, uh, uh, these are all activities that are prohibited, increasingly so, by laws at the city level. Um, and so this is an example of institutionalized racism and sexism at its best. Um, because what it does is by its very form and function, it's, it ensures uh, that someone who is homeless will necess necessarily break the law, right? So once this happens, this is what's so fascinating and, and completely um, uh, disgusting about it when you really think about it. Once this happens um, and somebody is issued a citation, if it's a civil infraction, there can be um, consequences of fines, um, even here in King County, up to $250. I, I would be one of those people who would raise my hand and say I'd have a hard time paying that. Um, so the fines for a civil infraction can be up to 250 You fail to appear or fail to pay or come back to the location where you received that ticket, guess what, now it's been amped up to a criminal issue. Um, and when you go to that hearing, many times the only thing that you can contest, if they, if they catch you with a bench warrant for having dared to exist, um, the only thing that you can contest is whether you failed to appear or failed to pay, not whether the underlying violation occurred in the first place. Um, and so a perfect example of this um, uh, uh, here, we've got so many of them in, in the um, studies that we've done. We've done uh, comprehensive assessments of all of the criminalization ordinances throughout the state of Washington. We've put them into a graph, broken them down by city, type of prohibited conduct. 
so that you can see by city uh, just how illegal it is to exist uh, and uh, how strange it might be to walk from one city to another uh, and have the laws shift on you without you not necessarily, <laughs> you may not necessarily know that something that you did in one place that was legal there is no longer legal in this other city. And the consequences are tremendous. Um, we have uh, documentation that shows um, we've served public record requests on the city of Seattle and some other uh, cities throughout the state. Um, we've, we have documented instances of people spending in excess of 90 days in jail. Um, in connection with um, violating one of these um, uh, criminalization laws. The irony, of course, is a lot of people refer to these laws as quality of life laws. Um, uh, of course, that I think is adopting the perspective of people who would uh, say that these laws increase their quality of life because they don't have to be confronted with visible poverty. Um, and this stuff goes way back. Um, I talked to Mary. Um, there's a terrific book, if you're interested in the, in the topic, called Banished. It's written by a uh, University of Washington sociologist, um, uh, uh, Catherine Beckett. And it, it, it documents um, the city of Seattle's uh, commitment to banishing undesirable people from public space and the use of the law as a tool to accomplish this. Um, and the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty has shown um, that these laws are uh, increasingly popular. Um, so there are um, uh, massive increases uh, across the nation in terms of how common these laws are. Uh, so, you know, when I was listening to, uh, to you talk, Shannon and, and Alita, um, you know, my concern as a lawyer is to focus on the structural um, racism and sexism uh, that is, you know, kind of visited upon people through the law as a tool. Uh, and at some other point, I can also talk about the ways that, law, that the law can be used to help people out of those circumstances. But criminalization is a, is a situation that um, goes deep, 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 long back into our history, all the way back to England. Can I, uh, when we talked uh, on the phone, uh, I, I asked you uh, what, on, on the spectrum of disadvantagedness, what, what's worse? Is it worse to be <clears throat> black? Is it worse to be queer? Is it worse to be poor? And you said poor. You, you, you picked poor. And, and you talked about something called the dialogic default. Can you yeah. talk about that? That is um, a, a term that um, a very cool and awesome person uh, named Julie Nice um, she writes a lot about this. Um, and as it turns out, she also does a lot of uh, work on LGBTQ um, issues with respect to the law. Um, the idea in terms of the law is that if you are, are a member of a group um, that is subject to discrimination uh, and marginalization in some sort of systematic way, um, the, the concept of the law of our very government is that you're supposed to be pre protected by one of the branches of government. Either the legislature should step in and say, we should pass a law that should protect this person from this type of, you know, marginalization. Or the judiciary should step in and say, hey, these laws don't protect these people, you know, and in fact it subjects them to discrimination. Um, uh, what happens in the case of poor people is we do have instances um, where the legislature or the, um, or the judiciary has stepped up and um, announced specific protections on the basis of race or sex or gender identity or uh, sexual orientation. Um, but we also have a number of instances where, where the court has said, look, when it comes to poor people, 
we cannot do anything about that because that's a social welfare issue. That's what the legislature is supposed to deal with. And then the legislature turns around and says, yeah, this is super unpopular, this whole dealing with poor people thing. Um, and so they fall, poor people fall into a dialogic default. They're not going to be helped by the judiciary. Uh, and the legislature uh, generally does not pass laws uh, that provide for uh, uh, equitable protections when you compare it to some of the types of laws that have been passed uh, in, to protect against discrimination on the basis of sex or race. Thank you. I love that, the dialogic default. Yeah. Um, it's very catchy. <laughs> uh, this is something that bothers me. So the African-American community and the gay community are are very politically active, have been very politically active, civil rights, voting rights, gay rights, um, and yet this issue of homeless youth, homeless gay youth, homeless queer youth, homeless trans youth, African-American homeless youth, is anybody in those communities or any activists in those communities taking on that issue, paying attention? And I just, uh, there was a, I don't know if you guys saw this, there was an article in Rolling Stone a while back and it focused mostly on uh, religious uh, or homeless teens being cast out by religious families who, you know, just really didn't have any truck with, with homosexuality. But in it, there was a guy named Carl uh, Siciliano. He's an Italian guy. Um, a former um, monk, actually, who uh, was running the, uh, the, was the founder of the uh, Ali Forney Center, which was dedicated to um, homeless LGBTQ youth. And he really took the gay community to task for basically ignoring this issue. Uh, by saying, I feel like the LGBT movement has been asleep at the wheel when it comes to this. We've been so focused on laws, you know, changing laws around marriage equality, don't ask, don't tell, et cetera, et cetera, that we've been fighting for economic resources. What percentage of tax dollars comes back to our gay kids? And, and so my question for you guys, and I don't, I'm not putting you too much on the spot, I hope, is has there been any activism in the, in the LGBTQ and African-American communities around this homeless issue? Like, these kids are at risk. What are we doing about it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would answer that in two ways. I think one is um, absolutely, and I think some of the um, lack of being able to hear those voices is how structural inequality works. So when, um, you know, my, my boss uses this analogy all the time of um, sometimes when we do by and for community work, so we are queer and trans people working with LGBT communities, and we're talking about our lives, we're talking about our communities, and people just literally can't receive the information. It's like shoving a DVD into a VHS. They don't have the, the cognitive frame to actually receive it. And so this is part of that thing of my communities are talking about these issues all the time, every day, and it's who's listening, who can receive it, who can hear the, how we're talking about our lives in what way. Because I, as a buy and for organization, we put ourselves at the center. So I am not, I'm not at the margins of my own life. I'm at the center of my own life. So I'm going about my life, talking about my communities and my world. And sometimes people, other people are listening to that and sometimes they're not. And I think there is a real critique and I've heard that critique within LGBT communities around um, what issues get prioritized. So this is a common refrain um, when conversations around gay marriage come up. Is this, so why are, why are we talking about gay marriage until everyone's basic needs are being met? So if there are trans people being hugely disproportionately incarcerated who are being, um, you know, trans women of color are the most likely group of people to be murdered for, uh, for hate violence. Um, and so if there are trans women of color who are being killed in the streets, like that, the most dire needs come first. And so, you know, why are we not all rallying against that? And once everyone's basic needs are met, then, then we can move on to the next piece. And so that is absolutely refrain. And I think you get to see um, 
the history of that in the, the strong history of, um, of intersectionality within LGBT communities. So people, my queer and trans friends are working on LGBT issues, but they're also working on prison abolition. They're also working on issues of homelessness. They're also working on issues of criminalization. They're, they're working across and, and, and under the idea that we don't have to just pick one thing. So like, I don't have to just be a queer person, that I also get to be mixed and Latina and I get to be a, you know, a mom and a runner and a parent, and I get to be my whole self and all of those things matter. And so some of that is some of the strongest leaders in these movements are LGBT people. Um, and sometimes we just aren't seeing that part of them. Um, but there's a strong intersectional, intersectional history within my communities. So there, it is going on. So what, what about, what, Alita, I'm sorry to ask you guys to speak, you know, for your communities, but, um, but that's the way it is tonight. <laughs> so yeah, so is there that same kind of activism going on in, in the black community around homeless youth? So what I'm going to do is redefine activism in the similar way. Um, marching in the streets, survival, a lot of black survival has to do with a lot of outside forces, but... And so that's a lot of where the most visible activism is. But similarly, the, just the catching of young people is, I think, an activist, an act of activism on the part of every black parent who catches another child. So that's one. So the other that I would say is um, black churches are doing the work of making sure that black children are taken care of, whether they're checking in on families. That's a form of activism. Um, working to give youth voice. Some, I, I would say some youth do some activist work, but giving youth voice to speak their truth in their life, I think is the piece that we get to figure out how to do as service providers. Um, that's how we get to inspire activism, i.e. getting people out to advocacy, things that I don't think I was, well, maybe I was taught it in my home because my mother was a flaming feminist. But um, most of the time you don't get that message at home about t taking action for the, your life and the lives of others and taking it to the streets, taking it to the legislature. So I think that's a place where we as service providers get to provide some of that. Um, in advocacy days for homelessness and things like that. Let, let me, let's move along here. I want to uh, talk a little bit about what, so Megan, what, what are we doing about it in, in the county? Yeah, so I, I want to back up for just a hot second just because I, I can't help myself. You had mentioned sort of who's kind of who's worse off. And I want to just counter that question a little bit. For me, I hear that sometimes, and it feels like sort of what's the lowerarchy of oppression, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what's the worst? And I think that there, I don't know that there is a good conversation in there because I think it flattens human experience and it flattens just a ton of complexity, which is the whole point. So as an editorial aside, I have a, I have a problem with that. I am never going to say that again. Thank you. Great. I'm glad we had this little talk, Mary. Um, so here in King County, we're doing a number of things. Um, there is Project Equity, which Shannon is at the helm of with her team at the Northwest Network. That project is working with a number of agencies throughout the community to improve the access and the care for GLBTQ, for queer and trans young people who are using homeless services in the community. Um, that work is underway, and there's sort of recommendations coming from that work. Um, young people are very, very involved in that, as are service providers in the community. So that's really exciting work, and I think it's um, nationally cutting edge as well. 
Um, what we have started to do around racial disproportionality is look at the problem. We haven't begun the work in a meaningful way. And so one of the priorities of this comprehensive plan refresh in the spring, so taking a look at the community's plan and saying, okay, how far have we come? What work do we have yet to do is to start that work in a meaningful way. For me, that is putting funding towards a project that is focused on youth of color, in South King County and South Seattle. That is the place that I hope we begin. And so um, I have no authority, but I convene people. And I hope that we convene towards that. And that's, that's really, I think, the goal of the Committee on Homelessness is to focus um, specifically on youth of color in that way. That's, that's where I believe we need to start. That said, what we have started to do here locally is take a look at, of the programs and services that we have now for homeless youth and young adults, are they serving youth of color and queer and trans youth as well as white and straight peers? Um, and there's some hopeful stuff in there. Um, and I won't go into the details, but youth of color exit transitional housing to good destinations more often. Um, at higher rates than their white peers, and that's good news, uh, I think, but it's something that we need to keep monitoring. So our approach in a nutshell is let's look at what we have now. Is there any obvious example of disparity? Let's monitor that. Let's be thoughtful about that. Let's then focus on where is there obvious gaps in access? So for youth of color, for instance, in South King County or South Seattle, do you have to leave your neighborhood more often than not away from family, friends, chosen community to get support? We need to prevent that. So then focusing on really regional, how do youth of color have access to services? And then from there, I think, um, really what's the, how do we need to change our programs? What would even more bold, more visionary access look like for youth of color and queer youth? I think that's next, but that's a little bit of the, the landscape for mm -hmm. us. Okay, and, so, and what about on, at, the, at the program, at the advocacy, at the agency, service agency level, is there anything that you guys are doing that you feel like has, has been really helpful or revolutionary in that regard? I mean, one of the things that we talk about at the Northwest Network is that um, it's funny to talk about your own organization this way, but you know, nationally we are seen as leaders in this work, and it's not an accident that by centering marginalized communities, we've gotten value, valuable information about how to support everyone, um, because sometimes there's this uh, temptation to take care of like most of the people first and then like once you have that worked out you'll you'll go look to the margins to see like who else is around and if they can get support and that um that continues to perpetuate the brokenness of a, of a system that's always kind of after you've designed everything after you've built the house after you built the supports and services then you're like okay how is that going to work for black young people how is that going to work for trans youth how is that going to work for lgbt folks how is that going to work for folks with disabilities and then you're like oh actually we designed this whole thing and it's not going to work work. Um, and so when you put some of the most marginalized folks and the most underserved folks at the center of that work, um, you find that that actually makes better supports for everyone. Um, and so that, I think, if there was one notion we, that kind of community-based work that we've done that we've learned is that. And the trick is getting people to do that and getting people to trust the journey of that. Because they think like, but, but, but we're just focusing on this one group. And I'm like, I can just trust in the journey of that, that if we center the most marginalized folks, we're, everyone's going to move forward. Trey, if you, had, uh, if you were in charge, you know, if you were king, what do you think would help? Why are you smiling like that? That's a dangerous smile. That's a dangerous question. <laughs> um, I don't know. That's not healthy. Um, man, I, I don't know. If I... I don't know. There's so much I would do, you know? I feel like there's so much... Oh, man. Okay, you're trying to get serious here. Um, 
Okay, well, seriously, if I had the power to rule everything and run everything, I think personally I would do, I would have a lot more outreach and I would have a lot more shelters that that appeal to all populations. I don't feel that we have enough, you know, people of color shelters. You know, we had QIS, which was a great LGBTQ, LGBTQ shelter, but we no longer have that no more, you know. And I feel like we only have a few shelters, but not all these shelters appeal to all populations. And this is another reason why we have a lot of kids who are couch surfing or who, you know, rather be on the streets or who'd rather, you know, go to tent cities or adult shelters or, you know, rather do what they have to do to get money for a hotel, you know, because there aren't really shelters that appeal to their population or their community. Also, I would, you know, I don't want nobody to get offended, you know. I don't want nobody to get angry or anything, but I would make sure that there are just as many youth and young adult beds as there are adult beds. I personally don't understand that, but you know, that's a conversation for another day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Sarah, from a legal point of view, what can we do? What should we do? What are we doing? There's um, a number of, I mean, uh, the Homeless Children and Youth Act was um, uh, proposed this week. Um, and uh, that's obviously a step in the right direction at the federal level. Um, so there can be legislative approaches like that. Um, a number of jurisdictions have passed uh, laws that um, reaffirm uh, the constitutional and civil rights of people regardless of their housing status. Um, those are a step in the right direction. Um, and then, uh, of course, there can be impact litigation. A number of cases at the state and federal level have been filed challenging these laws, uh, the criminalization laws that I'm talking about, and also uh, lack of affordable housing and other type of uh, discriminatory impact um, uh, impacts from uh, the kind of structural inequalities that we've been talking about. Th some of those have been uh, successful. Um, uh, but I think I'd, I'd mentioned something else to you, Mary, about, um, you know, my view uh, is that um, in terms of the law, you also have to think about, um, you know, kind of uh, what creates laws in the first place are people. Uh, and so we can do something in the law. It's always a chicken and egg thing. Is it the problem with the way that people think and act or is the problem with the laws or do laws make people think differently or vice versa? Um, one of the things that I would really love to see uh, come out of the work that everybody's doing and the work that we're, we're all talking about tonight um, is uh, recognizing our own complicity. Uh, in um, creating the circumstances um, in which homelessness is able to thrive um, because of racism and uh, sexism and other uh, kind of structural things that we've talked about um, so that people would actually hesitate uh, uh, when uh, kind of confronted with a circumstance where they might otherwise uh, have a knee-jerk um, impulse reaction uh, to actually stop for a second, realize how uh, incredibly uh, crazy it is that the cards are so incredibly stacked against certain groups of people and the role that we all play in the dealing of those cards um, would also be in a really positive step. Thank you. I want to leave a little bit of time for audience questions and I got to let you ask your question. You've had your hand up for a long time. Go ahead. Hit it. Sir? Yeah, yeah. 
All right. If, do, you, do you have a question? Uh-oh, okay. Yeah, okay, great. Okay, thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you, sir. I would like to talk about the topic here. Yeah, do you have a question? Yeah, hit it. Okay. Yeah, so Okay. Let me Yeah, let, let me just uh, let me just repeat the question. So the question is what what are the differences between the way we deal with youth and adult homelessness? I want to answer that question just by framing how young people and adults typically end up on the streets. So we know that for homeless young people, the number one reason they end up experiencing homelessness is some sort of conflict at home. That feels, you know, probably not surprising to any of you, and particularly after this conversation. For homeless adults, it is anything from job loss to chronic illness to poverty to, you know, a number of other factors. But for young people, it makes sense that if you were in a home of some sort, some conflict, some disruption in that is the reason that you end up on the streets. So I think that sort of directs us to the strategies for addressing adult homelessness and young adult homelessness might be different. Um, I think where there's some real tension in the field, and I think it's a healthy tension, is what is our job to uh, connect kids to their adulthood, kids, you know, young adults to their adulthood. Is it our job as a system to be parents? No, I don't think so. I think it's our job to connect young people to the community, to family, if that's safe and appropriate, and in some fashion, certainly to higher education, to jobs, and so on. So for adults, typically a lot of that work's already been in place, and so the strategies are a bit different. I think some of the tension, and I have to say this being with the CEH, is that um, we don't have a focused effort currently on single adult homelessness, and it is the largest population of homeless people in King County are, are folks who are single adults. So what we do need to have as a community is a balanced response that meets the particular needs of all different types of people experiencing homelessness, uh, and that does that at the scale that will actually address the problem. Do, do you think that the resources are allocated appropriately, youth homelessness versus adult homelessness, in terms of the numbers? You know, I can't answer that question, but I can say that there, uh, there are not sufficient resources to address youth and young adult homelessness. Mm -hmm. I think until we know what, this, what the scale of the resources needed to really solve that problem are, though, we need to look at what we're doing currently. Are we doing this effectively? Are we targeting everything we have as effective as we need to? And that's the work that our region is, is really underway right now. Are the resources sufficient to address youth homelessness? No, I don't think so. But what is the scale that's needed? That's the problem that we need to solve right now so that we can go out with a very credible argument for exactly what's needed, how much, by when, and so on. And I, again, I don't think that's a, an impossible problem to solve, actually. Okay. Does anybody else have anything to say about that? Do we have another question? Hickory. Um, so I was wondering, just you were talking about the dialogic default earlier, and so one example may be you know, legal financial obligations often are a, a prime example.
So, so I guess, let, let me paraphrase and, and help me. Yeah, what are you talking about? No, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, I think that, that, so the question is sometimes the laws don't, don't really make any sense. Um, you know, your example about, uh, you know, you're homeless and we're going to charge you $250 because you peed in public. Well, you know, what else are you going to do? And of course you can't pay it. And then, mm -hmm. yeah. So, who's, who's making those kinds of non common sense and, and sort of mean spirited decisions, it feels like, and why? Um, this goes back, I think, to the, you know, we have a really bad track history as human beings of engaging in uh, the use of law as a tool to purge um, society of undesirable people. And you can, like I said, you can go back to uh, England warning out laws. You know, we have, um, there were ugly laws on the book on the books until the 1970s, um, you know, where someone who was disfigured or hard to look at couldn't appear in public. Um, we, you know, sundown town laws, Jim Crow laws, um, the list goes on and on. We've been using law as a tool uh, to subjugate um, people uh, and ensure their marginalization for a long time. The difference with uh, criminalization laws, the, the laws that, that I'm focused on in particular, is, um, <laughs> is that where in those other historical, in the case of those other historical laws, at some point we realized they were morally repugnant and uh, came to understand that they violated people's constitutional and civil rights, that they were discriminatory. Um, it is just remarkable how popular um, these laws are um, that, that create this cycle of criminalization. Um, and they're only increasing. I mean, it's staggering when you look at some of the statistics that the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty has put out. So the reason for that, there's so many interesting reasons. There's a, a, a sociology, if you look, cut, look at it from a psychological or socio sociological standpoint, there's a, a woman named Susan Fisk. She's from uh, Princeton, and she's written a lot about um, how uh, how people psychologically process prejudice. Um, and at the very bottom of that hierarchy, uh, she put poor, visibly poor people. People don't mind poverty as long as they don't have to look at it, right? People don't like to be confronted um, with visible reminders of desperation or how close we could all be uh, uh, to finding ourselves in that circumstance one paycheck away, right? Um, so there's, the, the reason why these laws exist is because people demand them. Um, laws don't just come into, uh, you know, into um, creation without people who are advocating uh, for them to be passed. Um, these types of laws, uh, the criminalization laws, are designed um, to purge homeless people from public space. Um, very consistent, like with the legacy of um, of, of banishing. Uh, people that we've we've been committed to for for centuries um, So I think what changes it is trying to figure out um, public education and dialogue, right? Um, like I said realizing our own complicity. That's one thing um, And go for the wallet. We have a number of, of um, uh, Studies that show even if people don't care about the the immorality of these laws or the the fact that they make no sense um, there are a number of studies that show that the enactment and enforcement of criminalization laws is way more expensive than the diversion of those same funds to non-punitive um, uh, uh, means, right? So provide affordable housing instead of criminalize people who are uh, in many instances forced into homelessness because of these structural inequalities. 
Um, so I think public education and awareness so that we can kind of change, change the minds. Uh, and then at the same time, like I said, coming at it from the law, it's hard to tell whether you need to change minds or change laws first. There's an awful lot of advocates across the nation who are working on legislative uh, approaches and, and litigation to try to change the laws. Um, it's up to uh, uh, all of us, uh, I think, to try and, and help change, change the minds. Thank you. Question? Going once? Yes, sir. Mr. Brown. So who creates the scope and the parameters of these programs that are serving homeless youth in particular? Okay. Well, I would say that the gold standard always is to be um, having the people who are most influenced and impacted by a support and a service to be influencing how it's designed. That is uh, more rare than common, um, and that you know that's one of the things we get by by being a buy and for culturally specific organization. So we are LGBT survivors of violence working with LGBT survivors of violence, and so you know we our own lives are the evidence of the work that we're doing, um, and. We talk a lot about this with domestic violence shelter. So a lot of the ways, the kind of the initial way that domestic violence shelter was created was to make sure that people who did not have, who were fleeing violence had places to stay. And then what it turns out is that collective living is hard. It's hard to live with a bunch of strangers in a house together. And so rules started to be created and the rules were often to govern collective living and they were to kind of have some norm. And what you saw is more and more restrictive rules and guidelines that were mostly about managing people, like just getting everywhere you needed to be at a certain time with the most efficient resource. And unchecked without a, a grounding value system of, you know, who is this serving? How is this working? You end up with more and more restrictive rules and laws where programs you know have a rule and no one even knows why the rule was developed and we often tell people to think about who is this rule for is it for the staff so that they're more comfortable is it for who who does this rule serve so those are some of the things that we guide people in and, and I hear some in your question the um the instinct that many ser as service sector becomes more and more um professionalized becomes more and more of an industry that is about a certain level of efficiency and, and sometimes loses a vision and a grounding of what, what's the conditions that we're trying to change. Yeah, and that has a top down, like someone who's never actually talked to a homeless young person's making up an idea and that, that then grounding that in the work of the actual lives of folks, um, you know, it takes guiding principles in order to keep doing that and keep kind of your true north in that work. Alita, do you, and, and I, I know you're going to want to have something to say about that. Yeah. Ali, do you have anything to, you, you want to jump in there? Same thing. Ideally, it would be those that we serve would be at the center of making those decisions. Power structures being what they are, and those of us who have power and privilege within organizations, our jobs, are loath to give up that space. Um, and that's across class, across race. We just, we're there. Um, so that's where I can, I mean, and I'm always doing that examination from our smallest laws on who gets, I mean, our smallest rules on who gets to be on the property when and how to, um, 
what would be the best way to meet the needs? I'm in South County, so I'm in Auburn. What would be the best ways to meet the needs of you as youth? Honestly, and I've been doing education, trying to figure out how to do that, bridge work. I don't think the places where I have felt and known that I had privilege, which is usually outside of the U.S., because I have that ethnocentric privilege of being a U.S.er, it's alluring. So letting go of that, um, asking funders to listen to youth, we do that. We have an advocacy day here in King County, which is a wonderful thing that happens in October. But again, we as adults have to do the work of making sure more youth get in there. And we have to really want to hear. And then once we, once we hear from people, try it on. Um, I've been in places where I've been asked my opinion as a specific underserved whatever and have sat with a number of people and given information across race, across a lot of our differences, and then it's been totally ignored. Again, it's about power and privilege. Who has the power and the privilege? That structural inequality that we're talking about, you, you've done your part when you've said, I asked the question, I invited to the table, I elicited information, and then you don't have to do anything with it because you did everything that you were supposed to do. That's an end in itself. Meg, I'm sure you have something to say. You're kind of inside the, the castle wall there at, at the county. There's a cocktail truck that goes by every day at three. It's great. <laughs> awesome so great. Um, you know, a, a tiny thing to add to that, and that is that I think um, we have programs that are developed across King County through um, provider experience, through uh, funder requirements through haphazard, you know, through all sorts of things, and 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 the programs, many of them are terrific with homeless young people. Uh, I think where there is some real promise in our regional work uh, is that we are looking at data together, and I think something that data does, and I'll use Countison as an example. The first time we did it four years ago, there was a preponderance of young people that said they spent some night within the previous three months with a family member, and for us as a community, I think that was a oh. We're not really asking about family. Should we be asking about family? Maybe we should be asking about family. So I think that there's a way that we are using data together to question our assumptions about what we thought is helpful, what we thought is most effective for young people. And I hope that the initiative is working harder and harder to also have young people look at that data. And Mockingbird Youth Advocates Ending Homelessness, where Trey is a, a member and a leader there, is, is really at that table to look at data as well. So I think that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I think when you have that youth voice, provider experience and funders saying, why haven't we ended this problem yet? I think that that's a, a pretty good dynamic to keep us on our toes. Let me, let me end, uh, it's about 7.05, so I wanna keep you later than you should, but I'm just curious, like if you, if you guys could just really quickly, what is the most hopeful thing that's happened along these lines in your life and work in the last three months? Go ahead, Shannon. Jump in. So I, I come to this work with a great sense of hopefulness, and part of that is, um, you know, there was a period of time where I, I had told, like, I was going to stop consuming all media that just told me about how sad queer and trans people's lives were. I was just like, I'm not doing it anymore. It is bumming me out. I'm just going to stop doing that. And 
and really got to tap in. And I decided every time I went and talked to people like this, I was going to talk about the resiliency of queer and trans communities, about how awesome it is to be queer. Like, I really love being queer. It is really awesome. And one of the awesome things about that is that I get to have access to deep communities that have values, that have that have kind of strove to reach out to each other, to create chosen families, to create a strong vision of the lives we want. Um, and that is awesome. And that there's a lot of creativity that folks have brought to how we create relationships and thinking intentionally about the lives that we're trying to build for ourselves. And so I feel a great amount of hopefulness in um, the, uh, in the creativity that LGBT young people bring to this work that all young people bring that I'm like, I'm talking to them and I'm just like, you guys are really like brilliant. And that, and that being able to hold on to that awesome vision of the life that they want for themselves. And so, um, and I've seen folks really struggle and then get to have awesome lives. And so I think sometimes just the hopefulness of that too, that we're talking about like my goal for every person to get to have an amazing, hopeful like life that they want for themselves and that that is possible. Like that's not like, that's not some like someday dream. Like that is like possible today for folks. And um, that hopefulness just, it is an important thing to balance and, and as we're moving forward on this work, which is multi-generational, but that today we can be supporting folks to have great lives. Take the long view. All right, so Alita, what, so, you know, hopeful moment in the last couple of months, what um, happened? Lots of kids getting housed. Lots of reunifications, um, and as unhopeful as I might sound, I really am very hopeful. I'm a high fiver over the phone with my young people. Um, so celebrating, I mean, for many, it's as simple as like setting a goal of getting a passport because we know life is not going to be here forever. Um, and then putting aside $10 a month to do that and working out a, as a case manager a plan to come up with what's your trip going to be? Even if you're homeless, what is your trip going to be 13 months from now? So I think there's always, I mean, and I love that because people are not jaded yet. I work with 15 to up to 22, to, through 22-year-olds. Through because people aren't jaded yet, they can buy into this, like, possibility that... Mm -hmm. This isn't going to be forever, and even if it is for a long time, it doesn't have to be hell. So I love that every day. What, what about you, Sarah? Uh, that would be the passion and commitment of my students who just tirelessly throw themselves at this work, uh, even though um, they work way harder uh, than required. Um, it's the same kind of renewed hope um, that there will be continued armies of uh, support to go out and change minds. Um, for me, I think it's past few months. I would probably say like seeing, seeing the fruits of my own labor and like some of the other kids and the youth and participants that I work with and some of the, some of like the friends that I know like since working with Mockingbird and you know being a participant at the YMCA and everything that we've been through prior before we got involved with all these resources you know and everything that we've we've like we've accomplished so far and especially like these past few months and like uh Megan Gibber said I'm a part of yeah and we were working you know on the homeless youth act and we had to testify this morning you know so just like little things like that and these are all 
you know, youth-led and youth voice, you know, when so many people say that we don't want to participate or we don't want to be a part of things or, you know, we don't have a voice, you know, this is something that shows that we're really trying to be a part and we're really, you know, trying to help make change. Yeah. Okay. Well, panel, thank you. I feel hopeful. I feel much more hopeful now than I did when we started. Thank you for coming. Thank you all for coming. I really appreciate it. Good night. <laughs>